This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is planning to be back tomorrow when she will be joined by the medical record panel. For today, we're talking politics and most notably today's health care funding summit in the nation's capital. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, along with some of his cabinet ministers, are sitting down today in Ottawa with provincial premiers and territorial leaders. And there is every indication the percentage of money for health care transfers will be going up. It's also reported that there will be an additional $100 billion or so for individual deals with provinces over the next 10 years. And now, the Recovering Politicians panel. Our Recovering Politicians have joined the show. Peggy Nash is a former NDP MPP. John Malloy is a former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister. And filling in for former Deputy Conservative Leader Lisa Raitt, John McEtitian, a Conservative activist and political consultant with Bradgate Research Group. Welcome to all three. Hello. Great to be here. John Malloy, I will start with you. Uh, this approach by the Trudeau Liberals uh, seems to be a revamping of the way healthcare funding is delivered. It actually seems to be a change. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a change. I mean, Ottawa has uh, has tried uh, with various degrees of success to put conditions on on transfers to to provinces. I think politically. It works well. I mean, there was polling out saying that most uh, Canadians want uh, these sort of conditions put forward from Ottawa. As a former, I mean, I'm torn. I'm a former liberal provincial uh, politician. So on the one hand, uh, you know, the the my, my the our cousins in Ottawa when I was at, at Queens Park are, are doing something which seems to be popular and which is uh, you know makes sense in having national standards. But as a former provincial politician, I always scratch my head. And whenever anyone suggests that just because folks uh, are located in Ottawa, they know better. They know how to run healthcare systems. They don't run the hospitals and, and doctors and things like that. Uh, that's run by the provinces. So it, it always, I, I'm always torn on these things because I think it's good politics. It probably is overall good public policy. But I think we, we're, we're all living in a dream world if we believe that somehow because uh, a group of uh, officials or bureaucrats are sitting in an, in an office in Ottawa that they know better than the people on the ground in the provincial ministries of health. So I, I think you're going to see both these come out over, over the next day or two as we, we hear what happens at these meetings. John McEtitian, from Premier Doug Ford's point of view, what is the objective or what should be the objective? Uh, as much money as he can possibly squeeze out of the Prime Minister. Um, the Prime Minister's uh, shown in the last three years that when there was a health emergency, uh, unprecedented, and we had no idea what it would mean, that the federal government was absolutely uh, uh, capable of spending all the money it didn't have. And here we are on the other side of the pandemic, and what we are glaringly aware of is a healthcare system that is in uh, on the on the brink, according to everybody. So what's needed now is every bit of money possible to fix the problem, give us back the system we used to have, or better. But is it encouraging, John McEtitian, that the Prime Minister is actually talking about tailoring additional funding to the individual provinces and territories and specific to their needs and uh, in the fixing of healthcare systems region by region? I think it is. Uh, I think it's something that's understandable. It becomes a question of does he get lost in the weeds of wanting too much? And uh, for him, I think, uh, you know, everybody agrees with the concept of responsibility. They just don't like being responsible. So if the if the dollar numbers are big enough, I think uh, the premiers will find themselves more than happy to have a certain degree of restrictions uh, or accountability put in place. Because fundamentally, 
they're what they want anyway. No one's looking at going to the conference to get money for health and spending it on anything else. So that that's half the battle right there. They actually want to spend it. The question is, uh, which we don't know until they start talking, is uh, are they aligned or is there a big divergence we don't know about? Right. Uh, Peggy, the federal New Democrats, uh, they will be heavily invested in the outcome of this new framework and whether it adheres to NDP priorities. And even Jagmeet Singh in the last hour was talking with reporters, uh, reiterating he does not want any of these agreements to allow for private health care of any kind. Well, Jane, yes, as a, as a former MP, I, I know well that it's the provinces that actually deliver health care. The role of the federal government has been twofold, both to provide funding, there's also funding provincially, but to provide federal funding, but also to ensure that our health care system, systems uh, comply with the principles of Medicare. And Canadians are very proud of Medicare, but their priority right now is to get a family doctor, to make sure they can get into uh, emergency wards, to get operations in a timely manner. So I think that the provinces, yes, of course, are looking for uh, for funds. And I don't think it's unreasonable that the Prime Minister would uh, negotiate to ensure that provincial needs are being met. But I would just caution that uh, we should be ensuring that those frontline services get the get the funding they need, and also that we are not think that can be a very slippery slope. We've de- debated that on this panel before, and I think it's important that we're utilizing, uh, at this rate, underutilized uh, capacity in our healthcare system for lack of staff. So that's that's what I'll be looking for, right. more staff and, and public delivery. Uh, John Malloy, back over to you. And I'm thinking about what John McEtishan mentioned as well. When you have politicians trying to work out an agreement on health care, you don't potentially have the right people in the room. Uh, we do know that Dominic LeBlanc, the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, the Federal Health Minister, have played key roles leading up to today's summit. How much uh, do you think there has been in consultation uh, with the stakeholders in healthcare across the country? Oh, I suspect that uh, there's a sense of of where they're headed, or you know, I, I don't think you'd be meeting if you didn't have that uh, that pre-agreement that's that's been put there. And you know, I mean, just to echo what some of my colleagues said. I, I think a lot of the premiers are going to be on the same page when it comes to the priorities for their province, and if there is this flexibility to have a have a deal with each one and what the standards will look like and that sort of thing. It's the the proof is going to be on on how general it is. I mean, uh, the the premiers are going to want. Something general where you have, you know, a few baselines and you can demonstrate that you've invested the additional money in a, in a particular way. There'll be those in Ottawa who are, who are trying to, to micromanage and will want very, very specific details. And that's where that back and forth will come. But I suspect that uh, with the amount of money, if you believe the media reports, the amount of money that's on the table, that uh, they've, they've, they've done a lot of this uh, pre-work in advance. All right. I'm speaking with our recovering politicians today. Uh, we've got John Malloy. We have John McEtishan as well as Peggy Nash. And apologies, Peggy, I referenced you there as a provincial member of parliament. You, of course, were a federal NDP MP. Uh, Trudeau wants a commitment that none of the funds will go to non-health care spending or that the provinces and territories will reduce their contributions to Medicare. Uh, John McEtishan, I think you said that that's kind of a no-brainer, but it is important that some of these details get ironed out so that there is no miscommunication. Right, and there's also the traditional weasel way out of it, which is, you know, you give me a, a billion or, you know, 500 million for this with all these conditions. So out of the other money that the provinces put in, uh, they spend that money whatever way they want. And, and let's be clear, the amount, the percentage of money that the federal government gives to provinces is lower than it's 
been in a long time. So there's a there's a certain amount of yes, you can put conditions on the money you give me, but you can't put conditions on the money that I spend myself. I wonder if, as you're listening out there, because in the end, this is all our money. It is taxpayers' money, whether it's coming from your federal contributions or your provincial contributions. What would you like to see come out of this summit? You know, you may be thinking, in the end, will it make any difference to me if I need to go to emergency, if I need to get a new family doctor, um, if I have surgery, will it get postponed? I mean, these are the things that Canadians are thinking about. What do you want to see come out of this meeting? What's important to you for Premier Ford to advocate for in terms of improving our health care system? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. The whole issue around private health care, Peggy Nash, um, we definitely have uh, Jagmeet Singh waving the flag for um, against going down that path. Uh, We have in Ontario already, and we have in different provinces as well, public money being funneled through uh, private health care clinics. How much of a concern is ultimately going to private health care for this particular meeting? Well, I hope it's a serious priority. Um, The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, campaigned against the possibility of of private delivery against... um, uh, Aaron O'Toole in the 2021 election. So it was a priority for him back then. Uh, I would just argue that we have unused capacity today in uh, some of our hospitals because of lack of funding for the necessary staff. So uh, I would like to see, and I think uh, many Canadians would like to see, that we're investing in our frontline caregivers, doctors, nurses, other support staff, so that we can fully utilize our public system. We don't need to go down this road where we have uh, private delivery that further siphons off staff, medical personnel from our public system. I just want to add one other point about ensuring that provinces don't use federal money for uh, other purposes. Because I remember when Paul Martin uh, invested a lot of money, uh, oh, probably a couple of decades ago now, in public health care, and Quebec turned around and gave uh, Quebecers a sizable tax cut as a result. I don't think that's where Canadians are at today. I don't think that's where premiers are at today. But I sure hope that the money that's being invested really is going to the priorities of Canadians because I think that we have so clearly need, uh, seen the need throughout the pandemic and, and, and even this year, um, how, how frayed our healthcare system is. It's our recovering politicians panel, Jane for Libby, and one of our regulars, Sita in Mississauga, has a comment. Hi, Sita, go ahead. Hi, Jane, thank you so much. Our healthcare system was once the envy of the world. Our healthcare system, long term care, are still operating in a dinosaur sword age. We need to update, keep up with new technology and new ideas. We want to see transparency, how the money is being spent. We don't want more people in the sunshine list unless we, we don't need more supervisors. We need workers. See that? And we, why don't we yeah. have this um, patient in- information be easy, acceptable, uh, or accessible around can- across Canada? As well. Okay, thank you for your call, uh, John Malloy. Over to you. Um, how relevant is that? How important is that that the average Canadian knows what comes out of this deal and understands whether it's going to be better than it has been? Well, maybe I'm going to be a little bit argumentative. I think I think part of the problem is the definition of a of a good healthcare system. Um, you know, I my maybe going back some sort of flashbacks to when I was an MPP and people would come to me and they would tell me that our healthcare system was broken and what a horrible job our government was doing because they spent 
11 hours in the emergency room with a, with a, a, a child that had a, a broken arm. And I'm not trying to minimize that, but we'd start to talk and they would tell me about uh, an aged relative who had facing cancer treatment and what amazing experience they had. They, you know, would talk about some of their own personal health issues with complicated surgeries and how they went through it. And it was always very interesting that, you know, it's, it's what is a good healthcare system? Is this about having a 20 minute wait in emergency rooms? Well, that's fine. Is this about more specialists? Well, that's fine. More access to procedures. And the problem is we can't have it all. And maybe we need to have a little bit more of a grown up conversation as to what exactly we're uh, trying to focus on. Is it mental health? Is it seniors care? Is it about this, you know, the, 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 the emergency room where I'm going to go in and be treated right away? And I think sometimes Canadians, um, there's a little bit of bait and switch, you know, they, 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 you know, run after every, every uh, shiny object they can and they they don't sort of say no this is what this is what it looks is going to look like for us well, I think, uh, John McIntyre, now over to you. I think we all want all of the things that John Malloy was just talking about. A part of the issue is that we need the healthcare staff to deliver all of these services, and specifically nurses, who we all know. I mean, we may be putting our head in the sand a little bit on this, but there are a lot of burned out nurses, and more nurses need to get into the system, and nurses need to have incentives to stay. Uh, totally agree with you. And, and I was going to say nurses and doctors. Uh, I mean, in a, in a way to get hold of uh, or control a uh, looming provincial debt back in the early 90s, the NDP government at the time decided that uh, they could prevent paying doctors too much money uh, as the highest paid people in the healthcare system by reducing the number of doctors that we had. And I don't think Ontario has ever got past that. And if I think of myself, but I have the same doctor that I had when I was 18, mm. uh, which might have been a while ago. So uh, I'm not looking forward to the future when I join uh, what I think is about to be the majority of people who don't have a family physician. And yet family physicians, aren't they the embodiment of, of private health care? They work for themselves. They get paid by the provinces, but they're independent uh, contractors. So this this boogeyman of private health care, I think most people would tell you that the first thing they wish they had access to was a, a personal uh, family doctor that was reliable. And I think that's what we need to, to look at, demystify the terminology around some of this stuff. And, and I agree with Mr. Malloy. What do we want? Uh, I can tell you that my, uh, uh, my stepmom uh, had a fall. Uh, got taken to the emergency, and forget hallway health care, she waited for eight hours in the ambulance before she was admitted. That's the state we're at now. So clearly the system is, you know, over the edge. Uh, we're bearing uh, the, the, the impact of having, for decades, spent more money on things than we should. All you have to do is look at the budget that's going to come out from every single government, and you'll see probably the third item, in size is interest payments for spending money we didn't have. And that's now coming home. It used to be once upon a time, conservatives used to rail against, you know, that the spending is too big, the debt is too big, it's going to impact our kids and our grandkids. The, those days are gone. It's impacting us today, every single day. Peggy Nash, uh, how do you respond to John McIntyre's comments there? Well, uh, you know, I will say that Ontario is... Although it's increased its funding, it has the least funding per capita of any health system in the country. So we are failing Ontarians in terms of investing in health care and keeping up with our growing and aging population. So clearly this is something that politicians can't ignore any longer. And it's no good blaming what somebody might have said or done 20 or 30 years ago. It's a problem facing us today. Canadians want this fixed today. And I don't believe that it's asking for everything to expect that someone have regular preventative health checkups along with uh, accessible emergency or acute care in a hospital and being able to access mental health or long-term care or dental care services. And the NDP has been uh, pushing the federal government to, to take baby steps, which they have begun, towards a dental care program. 
I think that uh, for too many years, politicians campaigned on zero tax increases, holding the line, cuts to everything. And we see where that legacy has has brought us. So uh, I would argue, let's face the problems we have today head on. I agree with Cita's comments that there's so much that could be updated and simplified when it comes to information, reporting. Why does a doctor have to write out a hand prescription and then have their staff fax it to a pharmacy when you can send money around the world with the click of a computer? Uh, we clearly have a lot of upgrading and right. catching up to do. Catching so I up. hope that's yeah. what's going to come out of this these Let, negotiations. Let's go back to the phones before we get final comments. Uh, Pat in Toronto, go ahead. You're on Fight Back. Well, as a former politician and as a CPA for 50 years, I find that it is so easy to spend other people's money. And one of the worst problems is we've got this political system where you're a member of a political party, other than at the municipal level, where, uh, and I talked to Bill Davis, one of the best things was you're not allowed to have a political party at the municipal system. Therefore, people will say what they want to say. Whereas, as we all know, in Ontario, all the decisions are made in Doug Ford's office, And in the federal government, all the decisions are made in uh, Justin's office. So, oh, it's 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 difficult. It's good. Yes, our system, we look after everybody as compared to the U.S., which doesn't service 30 or 40 million people. And we provide it for 40 percent less. But it is difficult to do this with politicians trying to understand how to run these I'll get final comments. Thank you, Pat. Pat from Toronto for calling in. From John Malloy, uh, uh, on a positive note, do you feel at all help, uh, hopeful about what might come out of today's summit and then these individual deals to follow in the coming weeks? Oh, certainly. I, I mean, there's a this is this is by far the most important issue right now. Uh, politicians realize that. I think they're all willing to put a little water in their wine in order to get the funds they need to move forward. But I also, and you know, this has been sort of the undercurrent of some of the comments I've made today. Uh, as someone who, who sat around the cabinet table, I was never Minister of Health, but I certainly uh, dealt with enough issues both as an MPP and as a, as a minister. There are no easy fixes, uh, first of all. And second of all, everybody seems to have a different idea of what this ideal health system looks like. And of course, we want to make progress in all areas. But, you know, there, there, there reaches a, a point, the limit of money that you can put in. And I think as a society, we need to figure out what, what is an adequate health care system and, and how do we get there. And that is not very easy, despite uh, uh, what some pundits say. Before I let you all go, our Recovering Politicians panel, I just want to go around the table and ask you your thoughts to uh, preview tonight's second State of the Union address for U.S. President Joe Biden, what he is likely to message to the American people, and what we here in Canada should be listening for uh, in terms of improved U.S.-Canadian relations. John McEtishan. You know, Biden's... uh not been thoroughly praised, but he also hasn't been demonized either. So I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, he, he, they've been a little bit uh, inwardly focused. And I think that uh, Ukraine, as an example, has uh, forced them to look beyond their borders. And I'm hopeful that uh, they'll, they'll be positive looking at, uh, you know, being a, a bigger part of the world solution rather than uh, worrying about their own borders. Right. Uh, John Malloy. I think, uh, you know, he's, he's done a lot of good things and he's getting no credit for it. So I think tonight's about creating a narrative. Uh, you know, the Republicans were great about bragging. I mean, Donald Trump had all that would brag all the time. I think he's got to come up with a very positive narrative of all that he's accomplished that can be said over and over again. And as far as Canada is concerned, in some ways, it's often better to stay out of the picture that, that you know, where we're, his, his, his focus is, is not on us and any trade irritants and, you know, the sort of made in America uh, policies and, and that sort of thing. So hopefully we stay out of the picture. But from a Democrat, if I was a Democrat, I'd be hoping that he had a very positive and simple narrative that Americans can take to heart and repeat. Peggy Nash. 
Yeah, I'm hopeful that his message is a a positive one. There's obviously concern about the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, There's genuine concern about the economy. I think he needs to reassure Americans about that. From the Canadian point of view, we're always concerned about cross-border trade and we'll be watching closely to ensure that um, that pro-American policies don't end up in any way challenging cross-border trade. We hope to be included in that, uh, you know, if there's a positive economic message, Canada wants to be included in that, in the opportunities of that message. And uh, it'll be interesting to see his comments on China, uh, because the world is becoming a, a tenser place than it has been the last few years. And, um, what that may mean for onshoring American uh, American sold products and what that could mean for Canada. You all were great. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Peggy Nash is a former NDP member of Parliament. John Malloy is a former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister and filling in for Lisa Wright this week. John McEtitian is a conservative activist and political consultant with Bradgate Research Group. It is Jane for Libby, who will be back tomorrow. And coming up next on Fight Back, Canada's response to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. If you've seen some of the video and pictures of the aftermath of that massive earthquake in Turkey and and Syria, the damage is absolutely colossal. Turkey's president uh, just in the last few hours has declared a state of emergency in 10 of his country's cities with some 25,000 emergency personnel at work on the ground. Uh, We know the death toll has dramatically surpassed 5,000 and is expected to continue to rise. And what about Syria, where it's much more difficult to assess the damage and provide assistance because of the civil war? Joining us to provide understanding of what's going on and what kind of help is on the way from Canada. Raul Singh, Executive Director of Global Medic, and Jason Nickerson with Doctors Without Borders. Hello to you both. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, Raul, yeah. can you paint a picture for us of the damage in both Turkey and Syria? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, significant and catastrophic. You know, you've got 3,000 buildings down. On the Turkish side of the border, you've probably got 10 million people that live in that area. You know, it's 10, 11 major cities that are affected. And on the Syrian side of the border, you've got uh, an additional 4 million folks that have fled the war and fighting and sought refuge in that area on top of its normal population. And they've got really nowhere to go. So it, it's it's pretty catastrophic right now. Jason, the challenges in getting aid and help, particularly to Syria, are challenging to say the least. Uh, you've had people working in the region for the past 12 years in northern Syria, supporting health facilities there. How do you transition to assisting people during the earthquake or after the earthquake? Yeah, so as you say, we've been working uh, in northwest Syria for for many years. Um, so we were actually supporting five hospitals in northwest Syria, including uh, one with the burn units uh, and and then twelve primary health care centers, uh, plus conducting mobile health clinics and and providing water and sanitation services um, to some of the internally displaced people camps. So you know we're we're an emergency medical and humanitarian organization. Um, so when the earthquake struck, uh, those projects were able to pivot very, very quickly um, and to provide immediate support to uh, 23 health facilities across Idlib and Aleppo governorates. Um, and so, as, as I say, we were already working there. And so we had teams and we had equipment that were pre-positioned um, to provide medical care. Um, and so they were able to very immediately um, provide assistance. We treated about 200 wounded uh, people in the first hours uh, of, of the emergency. And then we've been um, dispatching our, our ambulances to try and establish a referral system, but then also to make additional uh, equipment and supply donations to other hospitals. Uh, Jason, what are you hearing back from your people in that part of Syria? 
Well, look, this is obviously a, a devastating event. Uh, the number of, of uh, dead and injured is, is rising. Um, health facilities are, are clearly overwhelmed and, and impacted, um, and the needs are very high. Um, so at the moment, you know, the, the initial priority in sort of the first 72 hours of, of an emergency like this is, is going to be focused on, on search and rescue. Um, but in parallel, you know, we also need to be establishing very quickly a referral system because there are many people who are wounded and they need um, access to urgent uh, medical care. But it, again, in, in parallel, we also have to be focusing on the health needs that existed prior to this emergency. And, and this has been something that we've seen um, in previous emergencies tends to be neglected. But, um, you know, I think it goes without saying that um, while we do have uh, an increase in acute needs, people continue to need access to routine health services as well. Um, so we're very focused on on certainly scaling up to, to meet those acute needs for trauma and, and wound care and so on. Um, but we're also focusing on, on ensuring continued access uh, to routine health services, um, but also recognizing that we now have thousands of people um, who have lost their homes. Um, we're, we're hearing from our teams. There are many people who are out on the streets um, it's been snowing for the past couple of days, so um, we really need to be moving quickly and, and focusing on things like shelter and access to clean wow. water, yeah. um, food, and, and, and other basic necessities of life. And Raul Singh, uh, your global medic people, um, who's over there now? How are you transitioning uh, during this emergency? Well, you know, we've supported uh, and done a lot of work for over a decade now in the very similar regions of, of Syria in the northwest. And that's been through giving, you know, medical equipment, medical aid, uh, and then these family emergency kits to so many of the folks that live in some of the transitional camps that, that have been there. And that's usually a point-of-use water purification unit, a little two-bucket system, gravity-fed, no moving parts, no electricity. Mom's able to pour dirty water in, and gravity pulls it through a ceramic filter, and she has clean water. So we're building up the number of kits like that that we're sending in through that nefarious supply chain through Turkey and into Syria, adding more to it. We're going to do some food aid as well. We're going to work on some of these shelter issues. We've offered up some of our field hospital units uh, on the Turkish side. We did that back in 2011 when there was an earthquake in Van as well. Um, and then they ran our unit, uh, which is which was good. But we're going to offer more of that aid in and then put more material aid in. Syria is really adversely affected compared to Turkey because there's just no additional help coming in. So it's really important to do our best to advocate for that and get even more aid in there. Right. Well, how big of a part does the the war, the civil war, play in, in that challenge? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that the civil war has just it basically cut off, you know, that region. There's only one entry point, one major entry point from the Turkish side. Um, and the folks that are affected, you know, they can't go back to the government controlled areas. They were fleeing being killed from there. So they're kind of trapped and they're, and they're really stuck in a difficult place, which is, which is hard. Um, and then if you just compare the responses, like I'm very happy that the world is coming in to help Turkey. You know, there's 45 countries, there's big teams that are coming in from around the world. But if you're trapped in a, in a building right now, um, and you're stuck under the rubble in Turkey, there's a good chance that there's an international team working against the clock to try and get you out. But in Syria, there isn't. So you're just in it a lot harder. Wow. Uh, just before we went to air here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Harjit Sajjan, Canada's International Development Minister, made an announcement saying that Canada is sending $10 million in aid to help with the response to the devastating earthquakes in both Turkey and Syria. Uh, Jason, how far does $10 million go in a situation like this? Well, look, obviously this uh, is is what allows uh, many humanitarian organizations to to scale up and, and respond. Um, in our case, Doctors Without Borders uh, is uh, by and large privately funded, uh, and in fact, in Syria and in Turkey, our operations are entirely funded by individual private donors. Um, and overall, across the organization, individual donors make up about ninety seven percent of of the funds that we rely on to be able to respond quickly uh, and immediately to these emergencies, as we've done in Syria. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely essential that the international community scales up. Um, and part of that is, is by mobilizing emergency funds to be able to um, secure uh, humanitarian supplies and, and ensure that humanitarian operations can scale up and, and move forward. 
Raul, your thoughts on that? And by the way, that is uh, $10 million. That is an initial response. Uh, Harjit Sajjan said that there needs to be a needs assessment to determine next steps. Um, Can you help us understand what that will entail? Yeah, I think it's a woefully inadequate first step, um, and it's a you know it'll do some good, but it needs to be higher. And again, that's spread over two countries, and you have a you know one country that has an incredibly higher need because of the lack of other resources coming in. Uh, The needs assessment is carrying out as we speak every single day. uh, You know, as we understand how widespread this is, like on the Turkish side, you know, these are 10 major cities that are affected, right? Like it's not a small isolated incident on the Syrian side. It's pretty widespread as well. And again, with a lot less resources, so there will be a lot more needs. And then, you know, the event just doesn't go away. The people that were fortunate enough to survive, they're going to, you know, require assistance for a while because you can't just rebuild overnight. You know, this is not slapping a roof back on a house after a a typhoon, and and that's not even easy. This is going to be a lot harder. Um, So we have to be committed to to help folks for, for the long haul here. Yeah, and Raul, when you see the pictures and you see that basically buildings have crumbled to rubble, uh, never mind rebuilding, that process just to remove all of that uh, that waste uh, must take weeks and, and even months, possibly. Yeah, I'd, I'd go further than that. It's yeah. years, you know, like it, it, it's going to be very tough and it, it's going to be a lot harder in Syria because of the lack of, of resources and access and extra assistance, but it's going to be really hard in, in Turkey as well. And right now, you know, the Turks have done a very good job uh, asking for aid to come in and coordinating it out. Like they're kind of best in class at responding to earthquakes because they've got so much experience at it. So right now it's just up to everyone else to, you know, step up and assist where we're needed. I have a couple of guests here with us uh, talking about uh, the aftermath and assistance that is required in Syria and Turkey following the 7.8 magnitude quake. That's Raul Singh, Executive Director of Global Medic. Jason Nickerson with Doctors Without Borders is with us. Uh, just to talk a little bit more about that $10 million and the more that will come from Canadian taxpayers does it get coordinated that that funding with private organizations Jason like yours or are you guys on your own and the Canadian government does its own thing global medic does its own thing how does that taxpayers money uh get used yeah well as as i say in in turkey and syria um our operations are are actually 100% uh privately funded through through uh, donations from individual donors including you know, hundreds of thousands of, of Canadians. Um, so the $10 million um, will go, uh, as, as um, Raul said, uh, you know, it's, it's a first step, but it's, it's also very clear that the needs um, are very high and there's, there's going to be more that's, that's required. Um, but um, as, as I say, in, in our instance, um, our operations are, are, are entirely privately funded in, right. in both countries. I understand that. But in, in, the, in situations where we do have public funds uh, helping to come to the rescue, would it make more sense for that money, that the taxpayers' dollars, to go to organizations like Doctors Without Borders, Global Medic, who are already set up to help? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, the funding needs to be going to, to organizations um, that are on the ground um, and who are able to, to respond very quickly um, and who can, can scale up in, in an emergency. So um, there, there are, of course, trusted humanitarian uh, organizations and, and partners who are doing exactly that. Um, but we know from previous emergencies of course, that, that coordination is absolutely essential. Coordination saves lives. It's, it's what allows us to, uh, you know, coordinate needs assessments, understand where needs are, exactly what they are, um, and then coordinate how best uh, to, to use funding and, and how best to, to target uh, the emergency response so that we're not duplicating efforts, yes. um, but also so that we're not, you know, missing anyone who's, who's been affected. And Raul Singh, how does that work um, with efforts by other countries? How does that coordination ultimately uh, play out when you have an international disaster like this? 
Well, I mean, it's a it's a pretty fluid thing, and it doesn't always work as as well as it should. And sometimes with the programming of funding, you know, it gets given into a big bilateral system who takes a piece, and then it moves into the region, and another piece is gone. So lots of that money gets to folks in need. And a lot of us as agencies have been saying, listen, you got to get rid of the front end of this just to put more aid in and make it more effective so you can help even more people. So that's always been an issue, and that still remains to be an issue. The coordination model is a lot about, look, countries are going to step up and say what they're going to do, and and they're going to help, and governments that are there are going to say, okay, well, this is how we can use your help, and this is the particular assistance that we need from from different groups. Now, in in a hard place like like the area of Syria, you know, we also have no government money that we're working with in that area. We're using private donor money as, as well. Um, it's much harder to, to coordinate because there's less governments giving in. Like Syria has actually suffered quite a bit of loss of funding from governments at you know, the expense of the war in, in Ukraine. So and then, of course, it's been very difficult to access parts of those areas because of the, the border, uh, you know, coming across from Turkey. And then just to go on Jason's point. You know how he's talking about the referral system? Well, right now, if you're injured in Turkey and you're brought to a local hospital, if you're a polytrauma and then you're you're going to get medevaced out to Istanbul or another major center with really good care, that's a referral system and that exists on the, on the Turkish side, but right. it doesn't exist yet in the Syrian side. And, and that's what those guys are trying to set up as well. But these are the things that need. So it's really a tale of two tragedies, the haves and the have-nots under both under very difficult circumstances. And Raul, for people who want to donate uh, to help Global Medic with efforts in Syria and Turkey, um, how do we go about doing that? Yeah, folks can go online to our website, globalmedic.ca, make a donation. We'll we'll ensure you get value for your money and we get the right aid to the right folks. Uh, I, I do suggest that folks really research who they give to and just make sure that the aid's getting there. And Jason, same with uh, Doctors Without Borders? Absolutely. People can uh, go onto our website, doctorswithoutborders.ca, um, and are welcome to make a donation um, that, as I say, allows us to, to scale up and respond to emergencies in, in Syria and Turkey and, and uh, in more than 70 countries around the world. Thank you both so much for your humanity and your efforts, all of your people. Thank you. Thanks so much. Jason Nickerson is with Doctors Without Borders, and Raul Singh is Executive Director of Global Medic. It is Jane for Libby. This is Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. If you were listening along to the morning Zoom with Sam and Jane this morning, you likely heard about that financial retirement planning survey. Canadians feel that they need to save $1.7 million in order to retire. What about you? How much have you saved? How much more do you have to go? And we will find out from an expert next on what the reality is around this picture. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. Well, even if you're not planning to retire for a few years or more, uh, you've likely done at least some financial planning toward a time when you might not have an income as you age. But how much do you need to have saved to retire? What is your number? And how much more do you have to go? Numbers to call if you'd like to weigh in on this topic. It is personal, I know, but radio is anonymous. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. A new BMO survey finds Canadians believe they need $1.7 million to retire. That is an increase of 20% from the 2020 version of the survey and is said to reflect people's concerns about inflation and the cost of living. The poll also found fewer than half of those surveyed, so just 44% are confident, 44% are confident they will have enough money to retire as planned. That means 56% are not, and that is a 10% decrease from 2020. Let's talk about these findings and put some reality around them with personal finance expert Barry Choi. Hi, Barry. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Barry, $1.7 million. Does that sound about right? I don't know about right is the right word. It sounds like a lot to me. 
Uh, that said, you know, I will say this. When I first started working, I'm not going to date myself. It was a couple decades ago. Uh, the magic number was one million. And even that seemed like it was impossible. Now it's 1.7, according to this survey, which I find very interesting because just last year, uh, it was 1.4. So I feel like there's a lot of emotions being attached here, especially with inflation going up. Maybe it's the right number. Maybe it's not. But I'll tell this. I, I'm sure there are people listening right now and they're freaking out about that number. It's different for every single person. You know, it's called personal finance for a reason. Well, and I want to ask you how you determine your quote unquote number. Um, I'm wondering, though, this 1.7 million, is this all money or is it a combination of RSPs, cash, TFSA and say equity in your home? I think it's 1.7 million. I think as a general listener should be like total assets. I'm assuming that's what people are talking about. So it includes real estate. Uh, Of course, it can be a bit tricky. So when you think about it, a lot of boomers these days, if they own their home, you know, 1.7 million could be nothing because they might have it in their home. Uh, Of course, that might require a lifestyle choice. You can't necessarily just sell sell your bathroom, sell your bedroom. You would need to sell your entire house if you want to access that equity. And then you would need a place to rent after the fact. Right. Um, But also at the same time, you know, 1.7 million or whatever number you have in your head, is a bit deceiving because there are some government programs that can help you, such as the Canadian Pension Plan and Old Age Security. So it's not like you need to save everything. There are going to be some assistance, but you should be saving, of course. So what is the best way of deciding as an individual how much you should have in your savings um, before you don't have an income? (laughs) (laughs) I would recommend anyone, whether you're be 40, 50, 60, to seek out the services of a fee-only financial advisor. And the reason I say this is, They'll literally crunch numbers for you. You know, you're paying them a set fee. They have no bias. They're not trying to sell you anything. Look at your numbers. They look at your income, your assets. And they talk to you about what your lifestyle is going to be like when you retire. What kind of lifestyle do you want? And based on what you tell them, what you already have, they can run the numbers for you to see if you're doing good shit. And to give you a perfect example, you know, a couple of years ago, I decided to quit my job. Uh, and before I did that, I wasn't sure because I was very worried about my retirement. It's like, if I leave my full-time job, my pension, my income... Will I be able to make enough money as a freelancer? So when I hired a fee-only financial advisor, he ran the numbers. And he told me, he's like, listen, Barry, this is all you actually need to make. And it was literally half of what I had expected. And I'm not even kidding you. Two weeks later, I I resigned. I quit my job and I quickly realized I'm okay. So, So a lot of people are saving. They've got this number, but they don't realize that they may not actually need that money. And until you get, until you get the advice from someone professional, you'll never know. How much, uh, and you've seen the industry change, as you mentioned, over a couple of decades, how much is longevity playing into retirement planning and funding? More and more people are living to be into their 90s, some (laughs) to be 100. (laughs) You know, it is a huge thing. There's no doubt. You you know, when when CPP was uh, started in the payouts, I would imagine that they weren't expecting people to live as long. You know, obviously, we want everyone to have a long, healthy life. Uh, but our savings may not last as long. So I think people do need to save more. But at the same time, I think people need to change their investment strategy and why they need to speak to a financial advisor. You know, back in the day, you know, they were saying, hey, when you hit 65, you got to make sure it's all in cash. So, so there's no risk. But, you know, you hit 65 now, you might have two or three decades left to live. So you're going to still invest is what I'm saying. So you still have time for your money to grow. But you need to be smart about it, and that's why you need to work with a professional or at least have an understanding of your finances to make sure you have enough money to last you. So when somebody comes to see you and wants to talk about how much income they need for retirement, what are the questions that you ask them, Barry? Well, I'm not a financial advisor, but, you know, as general advice, I tell them, like, think about what kind of lifestyle do you want? You know, a lot of people think they're going to be spending the same amount of money they do now um, in retirement. But that's usually not the case. You know, quite often your kids will be out of the home. You may no longer have a mortgage. Obviously, there'll be other expenses, such as, you know, medical expenses. People will spend more on medical expenses when they get older. You might want to travel more. Uh, but overall, when you, you also got to remember, like I was talking about CPP and old age security, that will add to your income. So, so generally, I tell people to think about what uh, lifestyle do you want? Are you thinking about moving somewhere else? Do you want to stay in your home? Are you going to downsize? Do you plan on traveling more? And once you've thought about that, then you can really go to a professional and get get their opinion. Right. And, you know, in terms of uh, that ideal age when people decide to leave the job that gives them a paycheck and maybe do something else, reinvent mm-hmm. their life and, and take that risk, um, it seems that... Um, 
about, well, about a quarter of Canadians, according to the BMO survey, plan to retire between the ages of 60 and 69 with an average age of 62. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how much has that changed? Is that, is that younger than what it used to be or is that a little bit older? You know, this, this uh, stat was very interesting to me because it obviously depends on where you live in the country, uh, what you do professionally. You know, my dad, he retired at 65 because of health issues. But if he could, he would so happily be working right now because he's just an immigrant. Working is all he likes to do. And unfortunately, you know, some major cities such as Toronto and Vancouver, it's very expensive to live. So I wouldn't be surprised if some people are retiring later. That said, the age of 62, I think part of it has to do with the pandemic in the sense a lot of people have quickly realized that there's more to life than just working. Uh, so I think people have recognized what's happened over the last few years and they're, they're prioritizing, say, family or personal time more than anything else. And I wouldn't be surprised if it trends lower over the next few years, uh, because just seeing the shift in, in the work demographics, people have different expectations of uh, what a work life balance is these days. Right. But, and what people choose to do after, uh, say, leaving a profession or the type of work they've been doing all their adult life, uh, there may be an opportunity for income post quote unquote <laughs> retirement. That's exactly it. You know, a lot of people, myself included, you know, you work at a job for a couple of decades and you think, this is all I know. I can never do anything else. But what people realize or, or don't realize is that you've got so many skills. You, you know, you've done so much, you've accomplished so much, and those skills are transferable in a different way. So yeah, you can re- retire and still, you know, uh, work casually just to bring in some extra income. So you're not bored at home. It can also offset some of your, your, your retirement savings. So there's still a lot of opportunities out there for people to make an income even when they're retired. Obviously, you won't be making as much as, say, the corporate world, uh, but there are opportunities out there. So you're in your mid-50s. You're thinking that retirement might come in five years, maybe maybe 10 years, uh, depending on how much you're enjoying your work and how much money you have saved. Uh, what, what advice would you give this individual? You know, I think the, the earlier people think about the retirement, the better. So, so 50 is, is, is a great number because in theory, you're 15 years away. But like you said, some people are thinking about, you know, okay, what if I want to retire in five years? Is this possible? So really what it comes down to is running the numbers with that financial advisor is saying, but also thinking about your personal situation. For argument's sake, like let's just say you work for an employer that offers a pension. You know, some of these companies, if you put in the years, you might actually get a full pension. So retiring early is uh, such an easy thing to do because you're still going to get money. But some other companies were like, hey, you know what? You can bridge you. Uh, you have some other options, but think about your, your investment portfolio. What do you have saved? Will it get you to retirement? Uh, where then, you know, when you turn 65, you can claim your additional government benefits. So, so again, in the end, it's really down, comes down to simple math. And even if you don't have that number in your head quite yet, think about that lifestyle we're talking about. Right. Is it, will it be cheaper to move somewhere else? Uh, what kind of lifestyle do you want? You know, that said, you know, a lot of people dream about moving to a cheap country where it's warmer, uh, when they retire, but they get there and they quickly realize that's not the life they actually want and move back home as soon as they can. Right. Barry Choi, uh, thank you very much for your perspective. Very helpful. No problem. Anytime. Personal finance expert, Barry Choi, Jane for Libby, who returns tomorrow, and she will be speaking with the medical record panel off the top of tomorrow's program. It's been great to be with you here the last couple of days. Bob Comsick coming up with the news and then the number ones at one here on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.